Father, do bless our afternoon, our time together. <clears throat> and we have looked at this topic of the headship of Christ over civil magistrates and how we as Christians should understand this role that Christ has and our responsibilities and duties to see the head not only of the church but of the state honored and glorified. So Lord, certainly continue to educate us, instruct us, and even give us boldness, Lord, where it's needed that we might glorify you and everything we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, I'm going to read those first eight verses. It is a, uh, a prophecy. It is speaking of uh, more noble and glorious days, uh, considering that there would be a king who would reign righteously. And that king, not only will he be a righteous king and reign righteously, those under him will be noble as well. And of course, this is uh, prefiguring the Lord Jesus and his headship. So I'm going to read these verses and you can sort of, you'll be able to see how this prophecy fits with everything we've learned about Christ so far Beginning at verse one, it says, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. And then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And the mind of the hasty will discern the truth and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous for a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty as for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. Now, brothers and sisters, as I have stated this morning and at other times, we can't put our trust in men. Our trust is in the Lord. It is in the Lord in righteous matters, certainly salvific matters, um, but it is also in, our trust is in the Lord in political matters, civil matters, for different purposes and goals yet our trust is in the Lord. I don't think it's a stretch to say that one of the reasons politicians are so cavalier to do their own thing is because even those that profess to, know Christ, uh, profess to be Christians and know Christ don't think that they owe Christ 
any loyalty in their role as a magistrate. Now, if they thought that, they would act in accord with that. So either they're complete in rebellion to the head of the universe, the world, or they're in complete ignorance of it. I mean, it can't be both. They're either ignorant or they're in rebellion. Now, of course, the answer to both of those things is to continue to impress them with who is the true head of the universe and who is the true superior over all magistrates. And of course, we have seen from scripture that that is Jesus Christ, that the father has installed his king on his holy mountain. And then we've been surveying the New Testament, identifying just certain places of scripture that speak of this royalty, they speak of this uh, majesty as without hesitation. There's no explanation given. There's no excuse given. There's no apology given. It just speaks of it as if what? We should know this and we should accept it. And the reason it does that, the reason the writers do that is because if we start in Genesis and read our Bibles and and without being clouded with all these other presuppositions, if we let the Bible from the very beginning start shaping our, our thoughts and our presuppositions with what we would judge other passages of Scripture with, then we would come to the very same conclusions that they come to, without a doubt. And that's why it is so important for us to let the scripture speak clearly to the matter. And while we've spent at least the time we have looking at the scriptures, especially the New Testament, I mean, we've looked at dozen Old Testament passages, but everybody would say, oh yeah, but that's the Old Testament. And how, but, but again, we come to these places in the New Testament and the idea that there seems to have there seems along to be along the way we've lost sight of what it is for Jesus to be a king for him to sit on a throne because those that symbol a throne is not a symbol of the church the throne is a symbol of what majesty uh, so again, the symbol that we use that we'll be looking at in a minute of the civil magistrate is the sword for the church. It's keys. Okay. Jesus possesses both of them. We find him in the book of revelation and we're not going to look at that immediately, but he wields the sword of authority. So, I mean, with that in mind, and again, we'll open up for some more questions, but again, just in continuing to impress upon us just the normal way in which the, the, the New Testament unfolds this majesty of Christ and, and speaks of it so casually that we ought to take note, it ought to, it ought to at least jump out at us. Now, I just read from Isaiah, 
And it speaks of there will be a king who reigns righteously. Now we know that's Christ. Christ is the future king who is going to reign perfectly, perfectly and completely in righteousness. And those that he establishes under himself and those that believe in him as in Savior and those that have been called into this covenant of grace, so to speak, they will be enabled to be noblemen under him. And that's why we ought to demand our civil magistrates to be Christians. I mean, we ought to ask, are you a Christian? Why not? If they say no, why, why aren't you a Christian? Where else better to learn about what it takes to govern a people righteously than the word of God? We, that's part of what we have to do as citizens, but as Christian citizens, to help our legislators, our magistrates, come to the conviction that they need to be students of Scripture. If you look at Acts chapter 25, we're not gonna, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but just look at its parts. I mean, here's Paul standing trial. Um, he has been brought up on, he's been trumped up on charges of insurrection. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And of course they are false. They hold no weight and validity over him. And yet the Jews had trumped up these charges against him. And Paul is standing before the Roman magistrate. And what got Paul there was they were basically going to kill him. The Jews were going to stone him. They were going to get rid of him. And Paul declares that he is a Roman citizen. Now, when Paul does this, it changes the whole thing because it was not lawful for a Roman citizen to be tried at the hands of the Jews. And Paul was a Roman citizen. Um, and so Paul now goes before Roman magistrates. Now, that doesn't mean these Roman magistrates weren't Jewish. There probably was some connection there because what one of the things that the Caesars would do, they would take these um, uh, Roman citizens who were of the Jewish lineage and put them over the people because they were good yes men. They were taking care of themselves. Uh, they would prosper in this role. And they were basically traitors to the people. Uh, Herod was one of them. Um, so these are the kind of people that was usually in the place of judgment. Well, Paul is standing, if you will, in the first before Festus in chapter 25. And the only thing that I want to point out to you is that all along the way in Paul's testimony, Paul does not in any way secularize the problem. Paul speaks to the problem in a religious manner. Paul tells them, I, I'm basically, I'm standing here, and he begins witnessing to them in the name of Christ. And he says, listen, I am being falsely accused here. These men have really, there's no substance to the charges, which 
they can't prove. That's what he goes on to say if you read the text. And he basically appeals to Caesar. And so he's kind of moving through the court system of Rome, if you will, in his day. But Paul has no problem standing before civil magistrates talking about who the real authority is and what the truth is and why he's standing trial. He doesn't, he does not in all, he does not in any way shy away from speaking religious truth to the matter. And in fact, he stands before Festus. Um, and in fact, Festus was, um, pretty enamored with Paul and enjoyed, so to speak, Paul's, um, his intellect. He was kind of taken back by Paul's ability to argue and debate. And, and there was some greed involved in that because he held Paul for almost two years, hoping to receive a bribe. It was custom in those court systems that if you had enough money, you could, well, you could get your court case handled pretty quickly. And Paul never did that. Paul stayed within the system. There was no bribe given. Paul is going to work this thing out. And so he stands before Festus and then he stands before Agrippa. And King Agrippa, I mean, King Agrippa is the one that basically says, wow, you have almost, if you read this, if you go back tonight or at least this week, and read this, I think you would be moved to see how Paul handles the situation and to see that Paul was very bold in speaking the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it is to be a Christian. And Agrippa tells Paul in chapter 26, verse 28, he says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Uh, I mean, King Agrippa is listening to Paul and he's like, Paul, if we continue in, these, in this interaction, I'm afraid you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. So anyway, so it's important to realize the, and the point is this, there's no neutrality. Paul does not present a secular life and a religious life. Paul presents his life. And the very foundation of Paul's life is his experience with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. That's what he says. I've been converted. I've been, I've been converted and I've been called to a mission. Now, this is my mission. I'm going to preach this gospel. And these men that are falsely accusing me are upset that I'm carrying out the mission that God has given to me through his resurrected son. And basically what Paul is saying is he's the God of the Jews. The Jews are upset about it. They're mad about it. But they are wrong and they have falsely accused me of insurrection. Well, first of all, beloved, how, do you, how are you guilty of insurrection if Christ is the head of the magistrate? If Christ is the rightful head, how are you guilty of insurrection if you're preaching submission to Jesus? There can't be an insurrection at that point. It can be people that don't like it. It can be people that hate it and despise it, but it can't be insurrection. So, Again, another passage of scripture. Again, those are just 
those are those events that kind of close out um, the book of Acts. Let me add this about to the book of Acts. It's not in Burks' notes. It's just, um, but it is something to make. Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And the, 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 he wasn't in a prison like, a, like what we would know as a prison. He was under house arrest, which means it was incumbent upon those who knew Paul to feed him, to really take care of him. He could have books. They could bring him. That's why he even said, bring me my parchments. Let me study while I am under house arrest. This is where we believe he wrote many of his letters. And this is where Paul says, I, you know, without ceasing, I continue to pray and lift you up before the Lord. So Paul used his house arrest to write his uh, final uh, letters to the church and to pray for the church. But he also was able to have guests. And so church people, Jews, um, philosophers that wanted to change Paul's mind, they would come and Paul would debate them. He would argue with them. All the while, while he's doing this, he is under guard. I mean, he's under house arrest, but he does have guards making sure he doesn't leave the house. Well, these are the Praetorium guards. And what happened to these guards? They became converted. And so they go back to their households, who was what Paul called under Caesar's household, and among his ranks, and they begin telling their family and friends about what Paul had told them about Jesus. And that's why the gospel began spreading throughout the Roman household, and it could be very, very connected to the hatred that Nero had for Christians, because he despised Christians, he hated the church, and he was the one who would fill his garden up with believers sewn up in skins, dipped in tar, and lit on fire. I mean, a sadistic, evil, demonic uh, a demon of a man. And he's the one that we believe in tradition set Rome on fire and blamed it on the Christians. He was that evil that even though hundreds if not thousands of people died in that fire, he didn't care because he enjoyed seeing the Christians persecuted for being blamed because they were blamed for it. So, um, and there are other things you could say about Nero, but let's just say that he was a very evil, demonic man and hated Christianity. So, and Paul does end up going to Rome, and then Paul ends up losing his life in the end. Paul ends up being beheaded. That's the tradition that Paul was beheaded at the command of Caesar. But before all of that, he writes Romans 13. Now, I'm not going to say much about Romans 13 because I'd like to spend more time on this text. But again, here we have a, a text of scripture in a book that is historically known and justified to be Paul's magnum opus of theology, right? Paul calls it his gospel, 
Paul says, I wish to come to you that I might teach you even more the gospel. And so this is all part of it. The whole exposition of the whole book of Romans and its exposition would be that gospel that Paul is speaking of here. And what do we have in Romans 13? We have his word about the civil magistrate. Now, it might, it might be confusing to some Christians. Why is it there? Well, it's there because of everything else we've already talked about. Um, Christ is the head of the civil magistrate. Christ is the superior. Christ is the head of all heads, the king of kings, Lord of lords. He doesn't do away with kings. He doesn't do away with lords. Christ sits above them all. And yet, Paul sets forth this um, picture of what a godly, or at least what a magistrate is supposed to be. And this is why it's just, it dumbfounds so many Christians when in Paul says in verse four, he says, for it's a minister of God to you for good. And Paul's talking about civil magistrate. Now that phrase minister of God is the same phrase used of, of preachers, same phrase, servants, those who have been set apart for a use Ministers or gospel preachers are what? Set apart for the use of the ministry, the spiritual kingdom, if you will, the kingdom of God, the gospel, the salvation of men, the, 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 the crown rights of Christ within the church. Ministers for the good of citizens, for the good of the people. And that's why it was not uncommon. It was not considered blasphemy or a confusing or mixing of the two when, when old theologians would talk about the role of the magistrate in the gospel. They were God's ministers, what? For good. in that it wasn't completely limited just to this secular kingdom, if you will, or this physical world, but that it was to demonstrate, listen, if you are a minister of God for the good, let's follow the logic. The good that is done is done in God's name. It's the goodness of not the minister, but of who? God. Isn't that a witness? Wouldn't we call that a witness? We would, wouldn't we? We would call that in some form an outward testimony, a witness. That is, we are exercising our, a civil authority for the good of the people that flows from God to you. Because God is good. Okay? Now, I'm not going to say anything else more here, and you can ask questions about it later, but I just, again, I want to deal with the text as a whole. But, I mean, it's, it's stuck right here in the book to the church. This is a book written to the church at Rome. 
about civil magistrates. This is why the confession talks about it is not ungodly for, for, for Christians to be civil magistrate and to hold public offices. That's not ungodly because what happened was when you started dealing with pietism, pietism, pietism is this idea that, well, there's godliness and then there's super godliness. Oh, I know, yes, right. You're spiritual, but then there's uber spiritual, super spiritual. And that's pietism. Oh, we would never do such things as that. Oh, my goodness, no, we'd never think. No, and what they did was they kind of, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like what you would experience. Pietism is kind of like the monks. We're going to separate or segregate ourselves from the world. We're just too holy for all of that. We would never contaminate ourselves by walking down the street and mingling with common people and sinners, you know. What did Paul write to the Corinthians? He said, I'm not telling you not to mingle with the world. I'm telling you to hold your brethren more accountable. Those who profess the name of Christ. He said, I'm not telling you not to mingle with the world. You can't get away from the world, Paul said. You'd have to leave it. So this pietism basically relegated the role of like civil magistrate to this world, the lowly world. We're too spiritual to, to be involved in dirty politics. And look what's happened. When, when, when Christians pull away from that good work, from being what Paul called a minister of God for the good, what fills the void, my brothers and sisters? What fills the void? Anybody else willing to do the work, whether whatever they believe. And most of them that do this work don't believe they are ministers of God for the good, it means they don't answer to God. And again, the church has failed, Christians have failed. Let me just say it that way. Christians have failed because we don't hold our magistrates account. We don't hold them accountable to these standards. And of course, we've gone so far down the road, it's almost, again, we, it's almost like we have to pray for just a complete something catastrophic or something so large and sweeping that it just, it, it, so it's the hand of God, clean this matter up. Because it's almost beyond human effort, isn't it? When, you, when it becomes so corrupt at every level, when, when Israel was corrupt in the priesthood, when its prophets, when her prophets were corrupted, they preached for money, the priests would bless for money. When the judges were corrupt, when the kings were corrupt, and there were, you know, there's a lot of corrupt kings in Israel. It was the hand of God that came against them because it was just, it's massive, right? It's, it's an undertaking that it almost can't be done on a human level. And is that not where we are today? 
that, that, that corruption seems to lie on every layer of our society when it comes to the heads of society, whether it be religious or political. Uh, the school boards or uh, the Department of Education, all of these department heads, these bureaucracies. How do you clean up what is systemically corrupt? Because putting one person here and one person there, and I'm all for we got to have a grassroots effort. I get it. But it's daunting and overwhelming. And we need the hand of God to just come in and sweep off the table. And God does that. God does do that. I think God is doing that. Because we are bankrupt as a nation. We are bankrupt. And... Inflation is stifling. People are losing their long, hard-earned investments in, in retirement, and it is a, having a dramatic effect and will have generational effect. So things are, I, I like what one person um, said, is, what you know, we don't want to prop up a system that continues to perpetuate um, what we might call economic slavery, which is what we become. We become basically um, providers to the system, see, because your taxes and your, your, all your public uh, financial support doesn't go to support you. It goes to support the regime. It goes to support the upper echelon and their misuse of funds. So, in Timothy is another passage of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at that quickly. I think that... Um, I know it's, um, out of all the things that I'm saying, you can say, Pastor, you are pretty dark. I get it. But there are, some, there are things happening. There are grassroot efforts being made, and people are talking about this. People outside yourself, I mean, people are having these discussions. Um, People are seeing the problem on a more of a greater macro scale and understanding, hey, this isn't sustainable. This corruption, this is no way you can prop this up. We need, a, we need a wholesale cleansing here. These conversations are being had, and they're being had, well, among all kinds of people. And I think that's a good thing. First uh, Timothy chapter two, verses one through three, Paul says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings uh, be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who declares all men to be saved and to come to the, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I'm going to stop there. Well, I think it's important 
again, we're seeing another text of Scripture that has no problem inserting into the duties of the church to do what? Pray for the civil magistrate. And pray on, in what way? Well, first of all, we ought to be thankful for good ones. We ought to be thankful for good. What's a good magistrate? A good magistrate is an honest one, a noble one, one with integrity, one that is for justice. That's a good one. One that is willing to hold to, well, you would say the letter of the law. What's good for this person is good for this one. As long, this is the, what the rule says to both parties. Now, it's interesting, and we fall into this because I see it, 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 the, both conservatives and liberals are guilty of this. If we like them, suspend the rule. If we don't like them, crush them with the book. If it's wrong, it's wrong. You know, you know again, uh, particularly along the lines of free speech. And we saw a lot of this when people could come out and speak um, uh, give you an example, it was fine for people to speak uh, against conservatives or uh, even uh, Black Lives Matters and whatnot, but they could not speak against Israel and Hamas. Now, that's a no-no. You can't do that. But why can't you do that? If it's okay for them to speak out against the conservatives, if it's okay to speak out against Black Lives Matter, why can't you speak out against Israel? And so conservatives were really, and, and conservatives, again, fall into many of the same pitfalls that the liberals fall into. And we have to be careful of that. We are to rise above that. We're not to be guilty of those things. If it's okay to condemn one, and this is my, this is my issue, and I think, David, we talked about this several weeks ago, you should be able to criticize, okay, not, not profanely, but criticism is fair. And criticism should be across the board. We should be able to question and criticize any group as long as it's done, what, fairly, and not with slander and lies and all of those other things that we would be against. But there should never, ever be. I think even a church. I mean, you, you, we should be able to question, you question the pastor. I'm not above being criticized. I'm not above being critiqued or questioned or somehow infallible. But you can't have a protected person or group, and it be fair. All have to be subject to the, well, legitimate criticism and questions. And that's what's being shut down in so many of these situations. It's, you can't say those things. You can't ask those questions. They're protected, such as the homosexuals, the transgenders, and all of these others. They are a protected class that you are not to speak against. And you can see what happens, it continues to tear a nation down because it's offensive. It's offensive. It's offensive when the innocent are punished for righteous things. 
okay? So, but Paul says in, to Timothy, he says, oh, we ought to pray for these rulers. We ought to pray for these kings in authority. That, now, notice why. Notice the clause, the purpose clause here. So that, notice that phrase, so that what? We may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. That's the purpose. Lord, give us the kind of magistrate or make the magistrate the kind of magistrate that will allow us Christians to live peaceful and quiet lives with dignity. Let us be able to carry out our faith without harassment. Now, listen, I mean, that's the purpose of the Constitution and the First Amendment, right? That we should be able to carry out our Christian faith. Now, of course, it was the whole idea of religion. When the, when the founders used the word religion, they were not thinking about Islam. They were not thinking about, uh, you know, atheism. They were not thinking about all of this other stuff that they knew were detrimental to society. Islam has been a scourge on nations for centuries. Their failure to conform to social norms and standards has always been a problem. And I'm not saying that there aren't any that don't, but those would be liberals in their own religion and not normal. But Paul tells us that we ought to pray in a way that we pray that the magistrate will allow us Christians to live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. And he says in verse three, he backs that up by saying, and this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I mean, you want to know what to pray, there's, your, there's, there's, a, there's what to pray and why to pray it right there. You could add other things to it. I mean, for a long time, it's been, it's been hidden. It was hidden at first, but now it's, it's, it's out in the open that you weren't allowed to talk about Christ in any federal, on any federal grounds, that, you know, any government uh, workspace it was had become, I, I won't use the word unlawful because that would be a law, but yet it was a enforced rule that you were not allowed to speak of Christ in these spaces. And yet it still happened in places, but there was still a general rule, you're not to do it. But you could be, an, you could be a Muslim and do it. You could be a Hindu and do it. You could be open about all other faiths could be open except for Christianity. And I've heard testimony of those who had lost their jobs over their faith. And it's not like they were not doing their job. I mean, look, if you're a Christian and you're hired to do a job, you, you have to do the job. You're, you're not it's not godly to stand at the water fountain and hijack everybody that comes to get water with the gospel. 
and you think this is a really great thing to be doing. No, you've been paid to do a job. You have to do the job. And, and, and opportunities arise by all means, be wise about it and kind about it. But, you, you know, uh, again, I even had to address this when they found out that I was a preacher and yet a general manager. They thought they could just stand there all day long and witness. And, of course, guess what? That didn't work. I mean, he, my, our employer was paying him to do a job and had to do it. And I had to explain that. Look, you know, I'm, what you do at lunch and on your break is fine with me, but you have to do your job. And if you don't do your job, you're going to lose it. And that's on you. So, um, nothing ungodly about that. Nothing ungodly at that. A, a, a worker is worthy of a hire, right? He ought to, he ought to return a, a service for the money he's being compensated with his time for an, that hourly rate he's being paid. So we see Paul has no problem calling for us to pray for the civil magistrate and to pray that we are able to live a quiet and tranquil life with dignity. Um, what else? Hebrews, there's a ton of passages in Hebrews. Why is this important? Hebrews is important because Christ is established in his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Yes, he's a priest. He's a priest in Hebrews 7 in the order of Melchizedek, who is both a priest and a king. He's very unique. Christ adds a third office or a, uh, the third office is that a prophet. Because Christ is very unique in his headship. He is a king and he is both prophet and priest as a king. He encompasses all of it. And no one before him had ever done that. Not in, not in, the, in the line of Israel and and what we would follow, David was a prophet. David was not necessarily a priest, but he was a king and a prophet. Melchizedek was a priest and a king, but not a prophet. So Christ encompasses all three. And we see, I'll just, I'll just read some of these texts out of Hebrews, and, and certainly you can see the picture there. Hebrews 7, verse 26 it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Again, the writer of Hebrews is saying, our high priest is not like any regular priest. He's been exalted. He is king. He is king. Hebrews 8, verse 1, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have a priest that's exalted. Where's his seat? At the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God you're tempted to just think spiritually. You're tempted to think ecclesiastically. But we're talking about a throne. 
He's taking his rightful place at the Father's right hand on a throne. He's king. He's royalty. He's not like any common magistrate out there. He is far more excellent and superior than all other magistrates. He is prophet, priest, as well as king. Um, turn to Hebrews 4. Let me see if I can pick this up here. Okay. In Hebrews 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, and this is a passage of Scripture that all Christians cherish. All Christians find great comfort in this command. Now, what is the command? We see there in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, so let's hold fast our confession. That's the commandment. Hold fast to your Christianity. In verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet with that sin. All right, that's another motivation. We have one, right? He's been, he's passed through the heavens. It's Jesus, the Son of God. That's a motivation to what? Hold fast your confession of faith. The second motivation is he's a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. You want that. You want someone who can sympathize with you. One who understands you, but without the sin involved. And then now look at verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the what? throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus, Jesus is uniquely king and priest and prophet. Uniquely. And we are called to what? To come to his throne of grace to be ministered to as a member of the church. But again, we often and quickly overlook the idea that it's a king who's ministering to us. It's a king who is prophet and priest and is full of sympathy. And he says, come and I will sympathize with you and you will find encouragement. Let's see. 2 Peter. I'm just, again, there were probably another eight or nine passages in Hebrews, but I mean, you can look those up. You can cross reference those if you wish to take that further. Let's see. Okay, 
Peter is writing his second letter. He is warning those who are guilty of notorious sins. In chapter 2, he begins talking about the false prophets. Now, I'm just going to bring a different light to the text, but it's going to be the same. And I hope to highlight a thing that you go, oh, I didn't think about it in that light before. And yet it's a proper way to see it. Verse 1, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example uh, to those who would live godly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in corrupt desires and despise authority. I'm going to stop there. Here's the point. And notice in this, in this catalog of events, historic events, look at what we're talking about, judgment. Judgment of the world, the flood in Noah's day. Judgment of a whole plain of cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment of others who, uh, look at when he talks about verse 7, who rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, probably is speaking of the kings that, remember, Lot was taken prisoner. The point is, this same one who is judging the sins in the church, those who indulge in the flesh and despise authority, are the same ones that God exercised superiority and majesty over the whole world and cities as a magistrate, as a superior. He has the authority. He is within his royal duty to judge the earth. He is in within bounds of authority and dignity and goodness. He's not usurping any rule. He's not 
disobeying any law, he is within the whole realm of integrity to bring judgment upon either the whole earth on a plain, on a, uh, when I say the plain, like a plain filled with cities, on the cities and on individuals. He's a magistrate. And the Lord of glory is the judge who will also be rectifying accounts of those who sit in church, indulging in sinfulness. These are connected. If we read these in their context, we should have no problem with Jesus being the head of the state and the church. No problem with it. And we should not only have no problem with it, Beloved, we have a duty to argue for it. We have a duty to say, the judge of heaven and earth is over you, sir, ma'am. You have violated the king of glory's commandments. And you are bringing not only upon your own head judgment, but upon this whole place because of your leadership. I know we like to say, I ain't want to mind my own business. I want to do my own thing. Well, I'll tell you something. Bad leaders are costly. Bad leaders are costly. You can't escape it. You can ignore it. You can close your eyes and like my little two-year-old, you can't see me. I can you can act like it doesn't exist, but you're never going to escape corrupt government in this world, ever. It will reach you. It will cost you. And so to say, you, you know, I don't have any dogs in this fight, yes, you do, because it's generational. If you can't do it for yourself, do it for your future children or grandchildren, because they, I mean, if it's going to get worse, what will it be like in another 10 years? What will it be like when we have a transgender president, a transgender governor, when we have complete abject racists in places of power that is able to punish people because you're not in the club? We have to speak out. But here's, what, here's my point. We have every authority. We have every right, and we have the authority to speak out. That doesn't mean it's going to be safe. Because remember, the world hates the truth. And the world thinks that they can get rid of the truth by getting rid of the messenger. But God raises you up. He raises me up. He'll raise others up. Just like he told Elijah, I've got 7,000 besides you who has not bowed a knee to Baal. And what was Baal? Baal was a political god. Baal was the god of the state. Brothers and sisters, we stand on good godly ground at the historic Christian faith is to see that our, our civil magistrates are Christians. Promoting Christianity and defending the faith. 
because God has established the magistrate to be a minister of him for the good of citizens.